Welcome to the Blue Security Podcast, a weekly podcast for information security defenders, where we bring you discussions on best practices, tools, and implementation for enterprise security. Now, here are your hosts for today's show, Andy Ja and Adam Brewer. Welcome to another episode of the Blue Security Podcast. I'm Andy, your host. I'm Adam, your co-host. There has been a lot of news lately, and so we're going to go over some more. I remember when we first started the podcast, Adam, and I was worried about <laughs> not having enough topics to talk about, but we are in no shortage of security news these days. Isn't that the truth? One of the things that I will mention real quick, but we won't talk about too much, is Microsoft actually announced the preview of quote-unquote cloud laps or the ability to manage laps using Intune, I should say. We're going to do a whole episode on that. There's a blog article that was released. So if that's of interest to you, definitely take a look at it. We're just mentioning at the top here that it was released and we're going to do a full breakdown for you probably next week's episode. Stay tuned. Starting off with the news, this is always near and dear to my heart, which is end-to-end encryption communication. We did a whole episode a while back comparing different end-to-end encryption apps like Signal and WhatsApp and so on and so forth. Meta or Facebook's parent company has had end-to-end encryption for Facebook Messenger and Instagram available as an option for a while now. WhatsApp, which is owned by Meta, has end-to-end encryption turned on by default also for a while now. And Meta has announced that they plan to roll out end-to-end encryption for Facebook Messenger and Instagram messages sometime this year. Well, as expected, the law enforcement community and the privacy slash security community are a little bit at odds here. And there has been calls by the virtual global task force, which is made up of multiple law enforcement agencies from the US like the FBI and ICE, as well as Europol and other agencies from the UK, Canada, Australia, you know, the five eyes as well as other ones. So the hoopla about this is essentially the virtual global task force believes that turning on end-to-end encryption will weaken the safety measures that are put in place for CSAM or child sexual abuse material, as well as just weaken protections against child abuse in general. They want some sort of backdoor into encryption. And this is an old argument, right? And we've talked about it before. Encryption is already out there. I don't think there are ways to safely put backdoors into end-to-end encryption because if you do, people will find it and they will exploit it. There's no way to prevent people from finding these backdoors, no matter how trusted your secrets are, right? Like think about the recent national security incident with the airmen who found top secret material, right? People are always going to be the weak link. And for some reason, there's always going to be a way to find these exploit and take advantage of them. So a lot a lot of people use end-to-end encryption for legitimate purposes, like journalists for anonymous sources or human rights activists when they're trying to protest you know, authoritarian governments in countries that they may be prosecuted, or jailed, or even executed for speaking out. So it's very, very important that we have stuff like this. It's actually a, a human rights issue, if you ask me. So I only mention this because there are more and more types of these communications that are happening in like apps that are out there. And it's important as security professionals to be aware of them because they can be used for malicious purposes too, like data exfiltration and you have to make decisions you know on company machines or devices whether or not you're going to block signal or whatsapp or facebook messenger etc and what the ramifications are there so again we've mentioned this a lot of times but security is about risk and managing that risk so people who are making these decisions have to decide whether or not the risk is worth kind of the 
flack you're going to take from users when they have to enroll their devices and then they realize there's a communication that they can't use anymore. So exceptions might have to be made or company provided phones might have to be used for those sorts of things. So anyways, I think it's important to know these things that are coming up and I don't believe this will change. I think Facebook or Meta will continue with their plans to roll it out. And I do think that's a good thing. Not having Facebook be able to see your data and your communications is a good thing. We always go back to the San Bernardino case with Apple, I think because it was so high profile. And what was interesting is at the time it was waged against the Obama administration, which had really presented itself from the beginning as a more tech-friendly and modern administration that understood modern technology. And you had the Obama administration's FBI kind of against Apple. And some of the rhetoric became extreme to the point where Apple was accused of supporting terrorism and people who perform mass shootings, like in that very unfortunate case. And this was to the point where, if you don't recall, like Tim Cook is going on like 60 minutes in the evening news to make their case. And I thought Apple was very brave in that because Apple took a lot of heat for it. Because people just conceptually don't understand this. And Andy, you got into if you create a backdoor, there's the risk of it being compromised. And while I'd say that's true, I think there's greater risk of political pressure. I think we've already seen in recent years the challenge of capitalism and the responsibility to deliver shareholder value against countries with poor human rights records. I think Apple in particular, just to use it as an example, has been an organization that has really stood out and stood up up for rights, like the LGBTQ community and for the environment. Apple has a really positive track record on that. But at the same time, Apple has a responsibility to deliver shareholder value. And some of those stances go away when it becomes time to deal with the People's Republic of China, where Apple does the lion's share of its manufacturing and sells a lot of hardware and software there as well. And so I think where you run into the challenge with this is if you do create a backdoor, it's not necessarily that you will have some adversarial nation like break into it, although that's certainly a possibility and they will certainly try, but they could exert political pressure. Apple, if you don't give us the same backdoor access that you gave the United States FBI to your new FBI OS you just rolled out, well, then you can't sell your stuff here and manufacture here anymore. Essentially, China could put Apple out of business. Apple, the largest company in the world, a $2.5 trillion organization would have a very difficult time becoming an ongoing concern if the Chinese government took such a strong stance and why wouldn't they? If the United States is granted access to that or the five eyes, as an example. And so that becomes a risk as well. This becomes a political gamesmanship, a political football. And on this same note, the United Kingdom is moving legislation through right now parliament that would attempt to ban end-to-end encryption. You'd be required to deliver a backdoor to the United Kingdom government and MI6 and, and that whole deal. And here's where I think that conversation goes sideways, because it's presented as like, they're going to force these companies to open up and deliver that backdoor encryption. Here's what's actually going to happen. You're going to effectively ban services like iMessage and WhatsApp in the United Kingdom because Apple's not going to create that backdoor for the UK. Facebook's not going to create that backdoor for the UK, Meta, I should say. They will instead turn off the services there and wait them out. And I think they'll win if it comes to that, if that actually passes parliament. But that's where we're at at this point is, and, and not to put like these for-profit capitalist organizations on a pedestal here, But in some ways, they're taking a more brave stance on this than anyone um, because they understand the ramifications, because they've taken the time to understand that there is no backdoor. There is no way to do that safely.
safely to your point, Andy. And whether that's through discovering a vulnerability or reverse engineering it, or it's through social engineering, a compromised person who decides to hand it over voluntarily inside a risk, or whether it's political pressure of potentially putting the largest corporation in the world out of business, all of those things could force that hand as well. So this remains serious business, and it's literally geopolitical across the globe in nature. And it's something really, really important to keep your eye on and advocate for and try to help the people in your life understand why this is so important and why there are trade-offs. Andy, we talked in the pre-show that sometimes these are emotional arguments are, are trotted out like, you're supporting child predators, people who prey on children. And no, I'm not. I find that terrible. However, reducing end-to-end encryption creates a whole set of new risk for the United States, for the safety of our men and women of the military, for our intelligence community, much, much bigger than catching the guy down the street, guy or gal, with really, really awful you know, predatory habits, right? I mean, not to like weigh things here, but it is bigger. And there is even more life at risk by reducing end-to-end encryption. So not to be like bombastic about it, but it's a big deal. Moving on, Proton which is the parent company now of what used to be Proton Mail is releasing a password vault, which is in beta. I'm really interested in this mainly because I am a lifetime member of Proton. I was fortunate enough to get a lifetime membership way back, I think in like 2014, 2015 time range. And it's something that they don't really offer anymore, but you can subscribe to their service as well. Proton's headquartered in Switzerland. Their servers are in the Swiss Alps under the mountains and everything that they do is end-to-end encrypted. So unlike some of the other email providers, they don't hold shared keys to access your material. They do not have your private key. They can't read your email and it will be the same way with their password vault. Everything is end-to-end encrypted versus some of the password vaults today where some fields are in plain text, like the URLs of the websites or sometimes even the usernames are in plain text. Whereas this, in this case, everything is end-to-end encrypted. And when we did our last pass episode, we talked about the password-based derivation function, which was used to hash the keys and how many iterations. We talked about how many iterations you needed to hash and how that number keeps on growing because of growing computing resources that can brute force these hashing functions. So now like, you know, before in 2015, the hash iteration might've been a thousand. Now it should be like over a million, which does take a little bit of a toll to calculate and decrypt your vault based on how powerful your computer is. Well, Proton is using something called a hardened version of secure remote password protocol or SRP, which is more secure than the password-based derivation function. So anyways, I just wanted to mention it. If you know, you're thinking about moving, if you're like coming off of LastPass or looking for another one, this isn't beta now. It will be publicly launched later this year. I really like this company, so I'm going to be trying it out. I don't think it's as full-featured as my current password vault, which if you're a listener, you know that Adam and I both use one password and we're big fans of that. And that's a great product as well. Bitwarden is open source and it has been audited and that's also a good option. There's a good free option.
option for that one password there's no free option with this one there's going to be open source as well for proton the proton pass it's called and will be available to be audited as well so another option out there if you're moving off of a password vault i think additional competition in this space is good like the fact that they kind of don't have legacy to support legacy vaults so they can start with stronger encryption methods by default from the beginning and i think it's great to be building a modern password manager with some of the lessons learned over the past year and certainly a company you can trust when it comes to security and privacy like Proton. So I think that's a really interesting offering and look forward to tracking its progress closely. Shifting back to identity, which we've had many conversations about over the last couple of weeks, Mm -hmm. LinkedIn rolled out a free verification badge that you can add to your LinkedIn profile. And unlike Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, you don't need to pay to get those verifications to show up on your LinkedIn profile. There's been a lot of news lately about Twitter Blue and how the blue badges are going away and now you have to pay $8 a month. This is absolutely free. There's going to be multiple ways that you can verify yourself. If you want to do a workplace verification, you can do that via email or Microsoft Entra if your company is using it. The workplace email is available now. The Microsoft Entra will be rolling out shortly. And then the other way is you want to just verify yourself without your workplace. LinkedIn has partnered with Clear and you'll be able to use your identity using a U.S. government issued ID or a U.S. phone number. And that verification will show up on your profile. It'll be available for people to see. It doesn't appear like next to your name, like other social media networks. It's kind of within your profile, kind of by your work experience and stuff. And I think this is a great feature because there have been several fake profiles, AI generated profiles with AI generated photos that are very, very real looking. And for me, I know people try to connect with me all the time. It's a great way for malicious actors to find just information on myself, right? Even my work email, then they can send like a phishing email to me or something like that, or my personal email places I've worked, you know, they can siphon stuff off and it's just information that's out there. I do have my LinkedIn profile locked down to just LinkedIn members, but again, anyone can go and create an AI generated profile and picture and just use a throwaway email and try to connect to people and find out more information about them like myself. So I think this will cut down on bots and fake profiles. And then another thing to mention is Microsoft Entra Verified ID. That's a fairly new feature. It goes beyond just LinkedIn too. It can be used for like background checks, loan applications. So if you're using it, it has a decentralized ID. We talked about this a while back, but it has a trust model that involves the issuer and the holder and then a verifier. And then organizations that are using it can cryptographically sign the digital ID, which then the employee can go and use to prove that they work for the company. So like, let's say you need to apply for a loan and the bank is able to verify that you work at that company, which just gives a more credible verified existence essentially. So a lot of good uses, but I really like this feature. I went ahead and enabled it on my profile on LinkedIn. The clear verification, I guess, is also still rolling out. Adam and I looked at it before the show and he is a clear member as well and wasn't able to see it on his profile yet. So if it isn't available, just wait, it's coming. But for sure, the work email that is there and both of us were able to do that really quickly. Entra verified ID is something to keep an eye on moving forward because decentralized identity, I think 
think is going to be growing in importance as something you can take with you as something that belongs to you as opposed to an identity that belongs to Facebook or Microsoft or Google or Apple. It's something that belongs to you and you can take with you. I think that's really compelling. And I think there's benefits for organizations to be able to prove identities as well. As you gave a couple examples, Andy, this is something that is completely free. There's nothing to buy. If you want to look at this or even start using it, maybe you've got some use cases in mind or want to learn more to figure out where it might fit in. Definitely something to check out, but absolutely no cost, nothing to buy, no licensing, no enterprise agreements, none of that. So very, very cool stuff there. And I think Andy touched on everything else like that. LinkedIn is baking in more verification options and doing them in a way that's free because I think it benefits the social network. Ultimately, LinkedIn benefits from having verified identities because it allows them to build more trust into their platform and continue to make it that really premium professional social network. And we should mention Andy and I both work for Microsoft. Microsoft wholly owns LinkedIn. So LinkedIn is a Microsoft company, although it operates independently. So that is our sister company of, of where we work, but we don't work for LinkedIn directly and they do their own thing. So very cool stuff from the folks over at LinkedIn really like this. And I look forward to being able to do my clear verification and should mention you do not have to have the clear plus membership that you use at the airport to jump the security line a little bit. That's not a requirement for this. Even if you don't have a clear account at all, it will help you create one. They will ingest your like driver's license or identification and get you verified on LinkedIn as well. So not a requirement, but it sounds like Andy, if you have that set up already, it does streamline the experience. Yes, it does. I was able to just take a picture of my face and then because I'm already a clear member, it just went ahead and verified me without having to upload any additional documentation. For those of you that don't know, so clear is an offering at the airport and, and what it is, it what it skips for you is you go through either TSA pre-check line or the normal line. You know, you have to wait in line to show your ID or your boarding pass to that first TSA agent that's sitting there and they stick your card in a thing and it reads and then it turns green and makes a bong noise. And sometimes they make you scan your boarding pass too, although that seems to vary. Clear lets you skip that step because when you enroll in Clear, they capture your identification like your driver's license or your passport. And then they capture biometric information from you. They do an iris scan and a fingerprint scan. And you can use either one. For me, my iris scan doesn't work because they wear really custom prosthetic contact lenses, but I can do the fingerprint scan. And then what they do is they actually jump you right in front of that person who takes the IDs. So you basically go straight to putting your bag on the belt um, and having to go through the x-ray machine or the other TSA machines as appropriate. It's a good offering if you go through very busy airports, larger airports that offer it, and you're looking to shave every minute of time that you can. It is independent of whether you have pre-check or not. So you can use it with or without pre-check, not a requirement either way. But if you're looking for the ultimate hack to get through an airport as fast as humanly possible, Possible, clear plus pre-check will get you through as fast as it is to get you from curbside to the airside. I do like it. And just to mention as well, since I'm on a tangent here, if you have an Amex Platinum, it comes with one clear membership included. If you have status on Delta Airlines, you get a discount on clear membership that way as well. So those are a couple of ways you may already either be able to get it at a discount or free entirely. Um, you do enroll at the airport. They have little kiosks there that you can walk up to and they'll help you enroll. And it takes literally like five to 10 minutes and you can use it that day. So then you will jump the line then and there. All right. Our final topic today is a little hack that I found while looking at different news articles. And this was something that even though I've been an iPhone user for many years, Adam has owned every single iPhone that has ever <laughs> been manufactured. 
This was both news to us, and it's a great hack on securing iPhones. So we're just going to talk about iPhone security for a little bit here. And while I understand that the global numbers for what operating system is being used is majority Android, it's like 71% Android to like 27% iPhone or iOS, iOS has the majority market share in North America or the US. And that's just over 50% and about 54% with Android being about 44%. So chances are are, there are many number of your employees and probably yourself as a listener use an iPhone. And these first couple of things that we'll talk about do apply to both Android and iOS, but the last ones will not. Andy, actually, before you go a little farther, I want to add a little more color to that market share conversation as well. Definitely different. Understand that globally, there is much more Android usage and, and iPhone is really prevalent in North America. But those numbers actually skew even more when you look at active usage. So every year on Black Friday or a couple days thereafter, IBM publishes information from the retailers they support about their Black Friday orders and the demographics of people who do Black Friday orders. Now, again, this would be people who do have disposable income. So that does excuse it a bit is people who can spend money. But those numbers tend to be in the 70s or 80s iPhone users of people who are actually uh, going out and, and using their phones and, and buying stuff. So what I suspect also happens is that Android market share tends to be people who are more like, I'll take the free phone, whatever. And they use it more as, as simply a phone. Um, and maybe don't use a lot of the smartphone capabilities as much. My own experience, and again, the plural of anecdote is not data, would bear that out that some of my less technical extended family members tend to like go into US cellular and get the free Android phone and they don't really like surf the web on it or do anything with it. So I think in terms of like security risk, I think this almost goes even higher on the iOS side, like in the in North America, in terms of those users tend to be more actively using their phone, which I think creates more attack surface for them. And the first ones that I wanted to talk about. The reason why we're talking about passcodes and the passcode to get into your phone is because specifically for Apple, Apple has been building in a lot of what I would call convenience features into iOS for users that are focused around their phone. Because in this day and age, we have our phone with us almost all the time. And it's essentially something that we use and, and we cannot live without, I would honestly go as far as to say, we cannot live without our phones for the most part. One of the features that iOS has is the ability to change your Apple ID using your iPhone's passcode. Now, this was news to Adam. It was news to me. I actually tested this out. When I go to my iPhone and try to change my Apple ID, the first thing it does is ask me what the passcode of my iPhone is. And it will be the same on your computer. Like you actually do need your iPhone passcode. So knowing that and knowing that your Apple ID password could be changed using the passcode on your iPhone, it is even more important to guard that. So just a few things. And again, these first two will work with Android as well. You should have a bare minimum of a six digit passcode. Longer is better. You can have a longer passcode like I have over six digits. And when you're using this passcode, please do not use like one, 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 right? There's that famous video of like, I think a congressman or something like that entering his passcode on video and 
he just like taps the one button and you're like, oh, okay, well that was easy. You know, don't use the screen swipe pattern on Android. Don't default back down to four digit pin, all of that. So that's pretty obvious. I'm hoping everyone has at least a six digit pin code or longer. The second one, which is also very, very important is shoulder surfers. This is how a lot of people are getting compromised. So if you're in a public place and for some reason you have to enter in your pin, you know, obviously you want to use biometrics, you know, for the most part, either a face ID or a fingerprint to unlock your phone. But there are times when maybe you enter it in wrong or you have a mask on and whatnot, and you have to enter in your passcode. Be protective of that passcode. Think of it like the pin to your debit card or something like that, where you want to actually shield it away from people because they'll try to memorize that passcode. And then later on, they will steal your phone and then they'll have it. Once they have your passcode and they're in, they can do all sorts of things. Like we said, finally, for iPhone users only, this is the tip that I found. And I went ahead and turned this on because why not? right? There's something called screen time and screen time is often used for a lot of different things. Sometimes it helps you track like your usage and, you know, try to help you take a break from your phone, stuff like that. It also has parental features that are there. And this one is actually used as a parental feature. You can turn on screen time under restrictions and prevent account and passcode changes. I actually have this turned on for my kids so that they can't go in and change the password to their Apple ID or change the passcode to their phone to something that I don't know. But guess what? It works for attackers too. So I went ahead and turned this on and then I set a different pin. Now you can only use a four digit pin for your screen time passcode, but it's different than my iPhone passcode. So situation, theoretically, Adam's looking over my shoulder. He sees me enter in my ridiculously long passcode, memorizes it because he has a photo photographic memory and then i do not <laughs> and then he steals my phone and he he's in and he tries to change my apple id password well it prompts him actually for the screen time passcode first which is a four digit pin which he doesn't know blast foiled <laughs> So not to say that you can't brute force this or somehow guess a four digit pin, you know, all sorts of things, right? Obvious, like don't make it like part of your, any publicly available data, like your birth date or whatever, your address, stuff like that, anniversary. Make it something that's random, that's random to you and not easy to remember. But it's just another layer that will help protect you against account compromise. And then finally, this came out a while ago and we'll mention it. It's a little bit hardcore, but there's something called lockdown mode. And this is really to try to prevent those zero day, no click exploits that have been popping up where you get sent a message with a link and it just executes code, which is crazy. But it, there are zero days like that, that the NSO group has found and other companies have sold you know, to government agencies to essentially backdoor VIPs and whatnot. So lockdown mode has protections like most attachment types other than images are blocked, like link previews. Web browsing with just-in-time JavaScript compilations are disabled unless you add it to like a trusted site. Apple services, incoming invitations, including like service requests like FaceTime are blocked unless you as the user are initiating it. And then wired connections are blocked. So if the phone is is locked or unlocked, like it won't connect to a computer and then MDM profiles cannot be installed. So sometimes your phone gets compromised and then another rogue MDM 
profile will get installed and then they can manage your phone. So a lot of different things that are included in it. Adam and I researched it beforehand. You can turn this off at will. So like if you need to enroll in MDM, you can turn it off, enroll in MDM, go back in to lockdown mode and it will keep the MDM profile. It just can't be enrolled into MDM while in lockdown mode. So it is pretty hardcore. I think it's fairly usable still in lockdown mode if you really, really want security. I didn't go ahead and turn this on, but it's available. I did go ahead and turn on that screen time passcode, which I think is a great tip. If you remember the, and I'm talking like the good old days of the Apple store and the Genius Bar, when they used to give you a bottle of water and they had the red telephone sitting behind there that was direct line to Cupertino, and you've gone and sat in an Apple store recently, you begin to understand. And it, it's sometimes we get in our bubble because we're all technical listeners of this show and we're able to share our technical knowledge with our family and our close friends and help them at least avoid the most obvious pitfalls. But what you begin to understand is there are people out there in the world that just don't really have anyone technical in their lives. And they have iPhones too, or they have Apple devices as well. You could literally just go eavesdrop in an Apple store for a half an hour and you'll begin to understand why Apple has built a lot of these convenience features into their devices. Apple has a constant battle of, they could add something like this and it might save 2% Genius Bar visits a year or Genius Grove, I guess is what it's called now because there's no bar anymore. You go sit on a box somewhere and it's lame. Anyhow, (laughs) it's It's just the scale at which they're dealing. They do anything they can. And it's a balancing act. I mean, Apple, I think we have praised on this show many times for having a great security and privacy story. They do an excellent job. But at the same time, like sometimes they do have to build in convenience things. And in fact, a lot of people have suggested several times that the delays in having full encryption of everything in iCloud, remember when we did cover that on this show, when that came out a couple months ago, there was some suspicion that's like, oh, it's a handshake agreement with the FBI for the San Bernardino thing because even though they couldn't get into the shooter's phone, although they eventually did, they were able to get into everything in iCloud because at the time, Apple still held the keys to everything and in fact still does by default unless you change your settings, which Andy actually went and did as well. And speaking of which, I should totally turn that on. I'm going to do that after the after the show. Uh, but but anyhow, I'm not trying to like defend Apple here. I'm just trying to give like the context of why they build some of that in. And I think they're incented in multiple ways because they feel the support pain when things are hard. And if you go into their stores for any period of time, you'll understand that. So that said, there are ways you can work around this or kind of if you don't need those nets below you, if you're on the tightrope walk, uh, you can start to kind of cut yourself off from some of those. And I think this is a really good tip with the screen time thing. I love this. It's pretty simple. And you can change that to a four digit pin. You might know really well. Again, nothing that's obvious or public. But again, like now that you're adding that second layer, like, okay, now somebody has to shoulder surf my device pin. They have to gain physical access to my device. And oh boy, now they're going to know this too. Like, you know, you start to get into like, this is an extremely targeted attack at this point. You may have just been doomed no matter what. You get back into the XKCD, drug them and hit them with this $10 hammer thing. <laughs> um, it's all like, this is this is just a simple security step you can take to harden your environment. And lockdown, we added right before we recorded the show because we started talking about it. And it's one of those things where I, I, I wouldn't advise most people to do it, but that might be something like the folks in the C-suite of your organization maybe should use, at least on their work phone. And maybe it's something like if you're going to like an extremely hostile nation that, that's you know not a huge fan of the United States, you might want to turn that on when you're you know about to cross into one of those countries 
countries, or maybe even some second and third world countries, depending on what you do and maybe how much of this you need. Like Andy and I were talking about, because you can go in and out of lockdown mode freely, you know, there's a security tip that says, don't ever plug your device into any like weird USB port, you know, bring your own power brick. That way, if somebody compromises that USB port, like at the Minneapolis airport and you plug into that, you're not at risk of anything. Well, if you have lockdown mode turned on, then they can't, malware can't get installed that way because the wired connections are just disabled. It will only charge your phone. So like, hey, you know what? If you're traveling and you don't want to think about that stuff, like, oh gosh, did I bring a power brick? Do I have a power converter? This country is on a different power standard than what I have at home. I mean, some of those things might just be really, really helpful to do and to mitigate your risk there. So it's something worth thinking about. Again, I don't think 99% of listeners of this show, unless, hey, you're a VIP, should be walking around with this turned on all the time, but it's an option. If a tinfoil hat is part of your regular attire, then maybe do turn this on all the time. But it's nice to have options. And I saw a headline recently that I believe it was the NSO group. Some of their recent malware they've created does not break through lockdown mode. Like lockdown mode does prevent it from working. And so that's really encouraging because that's extremely targeted malware against extremely targeted people. And if this does do what Apple hoped it did, that's really, really powerful. And that's a good tool to have in the toolbox. Just like with any other security features, sometimes there's no net. So do be careful when you enable this. Like Adam, you were talking about the end-to-end encryption for iCloud. Mm -hmm. There's multiple different warnings that are like, (laughs) if you lose your password or you lose your passcode, like we cannot help you recover that stuff. Right. So with the screen time passcode, there is the ability to recover your screen time passcode if you forget it using your Apple ID email as a recovery feature. When you turn this on, it will automatically come up with that screen and say, hey, enter in your Apple ID password to turn this recovery mode on. If you hit cancel, it's like, hey, are you sure you want to skip the recovery process? I went ahead and skipped it. So there's no way to recover my screen time passcode because most likely your email is your Apple ID and you probably have that synced to your phone. So if I have your phone and I know the passcode and I'm in there and you probably don't have an additional passcode to look at your email because I can just tap on the app and I'll just be able to recover your screen time passcode that way, then that thwarts this whole thing. So if you do want to turn this on, I would suggest that you turn off the Apple ID recovery. And if you're afraid of losing that passcode, then put it into like a password vault with one password. I know that if I fail the face verification, it defaults to the master password. Although there are some operating systems, some password vaults where you can use the passcode of your phone in order to access the password vault. So take that into consideration. For me, I know that if I put it in my password vault and someone else has my phone, they have to actually enter in the master password, which is obviously very, very long. So Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. I mean, in general, it's good. And maybe we should do a show on this, Andy, walking through what's reasonable amount of safety netting and what's not. Because I will say when I've had to set up, like, say my one password account on new devices, I've had that like flash of, oh, crap moment when I wonder, do I have that second factor? Where do I have it? Um, well, I have it in, you know, like my Microsoft Authenticator app instead, because normally I keep all my second factors in one password with everything else. And so 
so it's like, well, it's not a one password. So where is it? And I've wondered before, like, okay, is this too much safety netting? Is this not enough? Like, where should I have this? I also have it on a FIDO key, which I don't know where it is right now. So, you know, like you got to have a plan in place for like, okay, if this happens, then what do I do? You know, what are my fail safes? And, you know, you can start to build this scaffolding on top of each other, where as you point out, like if you pull this chunk out, a whole lot of things crash down or vice versa. If I have access to this one piece, I can build up a whole lot of scaffolding from one component, like that Apple ID password. I think one of the things we're going to link in the show notes talks about, if you're using Apple's built-in password vaulting in Safari and in the the iOS system one, again, I have your Apple ID password. Boy, I have access to a whole lot of stuff in there. Now they do require you to prove like some second factor, but guess what that is? Device passcode. So if I shoulder surf you, I got that too. So it's one of those, like there's maybe a little more diversity in, in how Apple builds that out would be good. But again, I understand they're trying to hit a very broad target with a very wide audience, with a very diverse set of technical skills. And that's our show for this week. Hopefully you learned something. Hopefully you go and take a look if you have an iPhone and perhaps turn on some of these features. I think they are definitely good for security. The show notes will include the links to a lot of the things that we talked about, where we got our material from. If you have any questions or future topics, our contact information will be in the show notes as well. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you guys next week. Thank you for listening to the Blue Security Podcast. Please check out the show notes, catch up on episodes you may have missed, and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Find Andy on Twitter at AJAWZERO and Adam at AJ Brewer. See you at our next episode.